You are listening to Rabbi Arya Wolby of Torch in Houston, Texas. This is the Parsha Review Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Parsha Review Podcast. My name is Rabbi Ari Wolby, and this week's Parsha is Parsha's Bow. Incredibly, this is the third Parsha in the book of Exodus, the 15th Parsha since the beginning of the Torah. There are 105 verses in this week's Parsha, 1,655 words and 6,149 letters. Why do we repeat this every week? Because... We need to remember that there's not an extra word, not an extra letter, not an extra verse in the Torah. And when we study through the portion of the week, we should analyze it. Why did God need this word written in his Torah? Why did he want this word, this letter? And it's incredible because every single commentary deals with all of these nuances of why was that word there? It's there specifically to tell you something. That word, yeah, that word, whichever word you pick. Each word is there. It's not just uh, a rambling of the Torah. There are nine performative mitzvahs in this week's parsha and 11 prohibitions. So this is the first portion where we have commandments given to the Jewish people. Till now, this was there were commandments given to mankind to procreate, to be fruitful and multiply. The bris was given to Abraham, so that was observed, but not yet a commandment given to the Jewish people. Abraham is considered a Hebrew, not yet the Jewish people. The Jewish people are the people who left Egypt. And we're going to see that in this week's Torah portion. It's really, really special. So the parsha begins by Hashem telling Moshe that he is hardening Pharaoh's heart. And if you remember last week, we talked about this. We're going to talk about this a little bit more. So that he, Hashem, can continue to perform the miracles. And this is the verse, the quote from the Torah. So that you may relate to the ears of your children and your children's children that I made a mockery of Egypt and my signs that I placed among them that you may know that I am Hashem. Hashem made these miracles so that, and God was toying with them, he was playing with them, made a mockery of them, so that the Jewish people will see the hand of God. By the way, not only the Jewish people, all the nations of the world, they all witnessed what was going on over here, the mockery of the Egyptians. And you're talking about Egypt, which was the most powerful nation on earth, the wealthiest nation on earth. Because don't forget, when there was a a famine, what did Joseph, who was the viceroy of Egypt, what did he do brilliantly? The Jewish mind, he says, well, we're going to store all of the flour. We're going to store all of the resources. And then when there's a famine, we'll be able to sell it. People gave all of their money. They gave all of their gold and silver. They gave all of their property. And basically, the Egyptian kingdom owned everything. So Egypt was very, very wealthy. And we'll see where all that wealth went to. Moshe and Aaron ask Pharaoh again to release the Jews, or you will be stricken with a severe plague of locusts. Pharaoh's servants plead that Pharaoh just let them go serve their God. Again, what was the purpose? Not for them to be free. That's not the goal. Go serve God. Go serve your God. 
So Pharaoh calls Moshe and he says, Who and who will go? Miva miha holchim, Pharaoh asks. And what does Moshe respond? Our youngsters, our elders, our sons, our daughters, our flock, our cattle, everyone is going to serve Hashem. And Pharaoh suggests that only the men go. He says, no, 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 just the men. You can take the men, take the, the, the women, but not the children. So that way you'll be able to come back. And what Pharaoh was trying to do is anchor us still in Egypt. You guys can go for a nice weekend, but come back to visit your kids, you know? Like this, you're anchored back in Egypt. So Pharaoh suggests that only the men go. Hashem tells Moshe, forget it. Stretch your hand out over Egypt, bringing the eighth plague of swarms of locusts, grasshoppers, and the earth is darkened and all vegetation is eaten. There's no food remaining in Egypt. Nothing. No food remained in Egypt. That's the eighth plague. The ninth plague comes. Pharaoh frantically calls for Moshe and Aaron to remove the locusts and exclaims his guilt. He says, you're right. I, I sinned before you. The locusts leave. The Torah tells us not a single locust remained in the land. Not one. Pretty remarkable. When Pharaoh refuses again with a hardened heart, Hashem tells Moshe to stretch your hand over Egypt bringing the ninth plague of thick darkness on Egypt for seven days. They couldn't even move for the last three. The first three were days that they just weren't able to see. It was very thick darkness. They weren't able to see anything. You know, sometimes when it's dark, you can get used to the darkness and you can see something. This is darkness. It was such pitch black that they couldn't see a thing. Plus, the last... They were frozen. That's it. They couldn't move. And we'll see soon what happened in that pro- in, in the process of that darkness. Pharaoh calls for Moshe and says, the Jews can go. Just leave the flock behind. Again, there's an anchor. Moshe refuses, saying we will take our flock. And not only that, you will give us more for our offerings that we'll need to bring to God. Pharaoh refuses again with a hardened heart and says, Moshe... Don't ever look at my face again. And Moshe says, indeed, that's a good idea. I'll never look at your face again. Moshe instructs them to ask the Egyptians for silver, gold, and garments as Hashem will give them favor in their eyes. Hashem will make it that the Jews will find kindness and find favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. Moshe then foretells of the 10th and final plague, the death of the firstborns, and then the Jews will leave Egypt. The first commandment is given to the Jewish people, and that is to set up a Jewish calendar, beginning with the month of Nisan, which is the month of redemption, which is the month where we celebrate Pesach, Passover. The second commandment is to take a sheep on the 10th of the month and guard it to be a Pesach offering on the 14th. The blood is put on the doorposts and it's roasted meat eaten and the the Jewish people are told to memorialize the Exodus by never eating chametz on Pesach. We eat unleavened bread, matzah, on Pesach, and that is to memorialize this day of redemption. Moshe relays Hashem's commands, and the Jewish people fulfill them flawlessly. And then at about midnight, it says midnight, but it's at about midnight, 
Ka Chatzos Halayla. We'll see why soon. Hashem sends the final plague, the death of the firstborn. And Pharaoh is terrified, for he himself is a firstborn. He jumps out of bed and rushes to find Moshe and Aaron and sends the Jews out of Egypt. He says, go, just get out. He just doesn't want to die. The Jews leave quickly, and their unrisen bread, their matzah, goes with them, and they borrow the silver, the gold, the garments, and Egypt is completely emptied out of all its wealth. There's nothing left. 600,000 men. You remember how many Jews came in? We mentioned this five portions ago. 70 Jews descended to Egypt 410 years earlier. There was 210 years of slavery. So 600,000 men between the age of 20 and 60 were left. Plus, if you count women, children, the elders, and the mixed multitudes, the Erevrav, you're talking about over 3 million people leave Egypt that night. So after 430 years in Egypt, 210 years total of slavery, every Jew left. Hashem tells Moshe and Aaron, the laws concerning the Jewish calendar, the Pesach, eating matzah, and telling the story, the Pesach sacrifice, and we learn the laws of Pidyon Haben, the redemption of the firstborn, and the laws of Tefillin. And Tefillin are a constant daily reminder that are placed, these Tefillin boxes, phylacteries, are placed on our arms and on our, on our head to remind us that our minds, our thoughts, should be godly, should always think about God. And our arm, which is opposite our heart, we're not going to tie around our heart, so we tie it opposite, closest to our heart, so that our heart, our actions, not only our thoughts, but also our actions, be dedicated and committed to the Almighty. So let's look at some of the important lessons we have in this week's Parsha. The first is that, again, Hashem hardens Pharaoh's heart. He hardens his heart. Why? We mentioned last week, it's so important for us to recognize that you need to have free will. Free will means that you have equal choice. As we discussed yesterday, Rabbi Nagel and I discussed in our Unboxing Judaism podcast. It wasn't released yet, so don't worry. You'll get it today, later today. We talked about how to understand tragedies, how to understand suffering. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do sometimes good things, seemingly good things, happen to evil people? How do we reconcile these things? They seem to not fit. So one of the ideas Rabbi Nagel suggested is such a beautiful idea. Because if good things happened only to good people and bad things happened only to bad people, you wouldn't have free will. Because everyone would know, you do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. That's not free will, right? It's a good thought. I never thought about that. That's why there's a mixture where you have good people get good, you have bad people who get good too. And our sages tell us that when the good people get good, that's just a small reward for their mitzvah. But when bad people get good, they're getting their portion of the world to come for anything that they may have done. So they're eating up all of their merits for the world to come, but the good person who does good is getting just principle 
reward here, but the interest for the reward is in the world to come. Just a little sidebar. But here, Pharaoh is seeing the most remarkable miracles being displayed before his very eyes, where every single word that Moshe foretells him comes to be. He tells him there's going to be blood, there is. He tells him there are going to be frogs, there is. He tells him there are going to be locusts in this week's Parsha, and the darkness, and the death of the firstborn. Exactly as Moshe prescribes is how it happens. And these are chilling plagues. I mean, all of the cattle die. The entire city, the entire country, the entire nation of Egypt is plagued with frogs everywhere, in their ovens, in their beds, on their chairs, on their tables. Ugh. Imagine. I mean, who wouldn't say, you know what, just just take your stuff and go. I don't want it anymore. How many people would do that, by the way, if you go on your vacation home? You go to your Airbnb, you get in there, and they're suddenly filled with frogs. And imagine the noises from those frogs. It's like, you know, what would most of us do? I'm out. I'll find myself a hotel, and I'll file a return with Airbnb. Okay, I'm out. Why, why, why didn't the people leave? Why didn't Pharaoh just say go? Just, you know what? I'm, I've had it. Imagine what the queen of Egypt, what the servants, they just, Pharaoh, just do us a favor. Stop being such a stubborn, he didn't listen to the Muslim podcast on stubbornness, right? <laughs> but stop being so stubborn, Pharaoh. Just let them go. And Pharaoh, in order for him to have free will, Hashem needed to up the balance for the miracles by giving him a hardened heart, a rebellion a rebellious streak so that he can have free will and can actually choose between two equal things. And that's why after every single plague, and we placed it here in our notes, you can find the notes online. The link is in the description of the podcast. But that is to teach us that free will means that we have a 50-50 chance and opportunity leading us to our decision our choice. No one should ever say, well, I had no free will. I had no choice. What would you expect me to do? Okay, the locusts. There were so many locusts that it says that the sun could not be seen due to the multitudes of grasshoppers. Imagine today is a beautiful sunny day, a little crisp in Houston. Imagine that suddenly it's like darkness. You cannot see the sun. Now, sometimes you see you have clouds. You can still see that there's a sun behind it. You still see there's light. Suddenly, there's total darkness. That's how thick the barrier was of locusts. What is this telling us? Hashem controls all of nature. When Hashem decides that there is a plague of locusts, they come from all over the world. Every single locust is called to duty, and that's it. I have to show up. God, my creator, told me to show up in Egypt. And they all need to be there. And they came. It says that there was an easterly wind, and it brought them all to Egypt. God is in control of everything. There's nothing. Not a single thing goes on in this world out of God's control. 
We need to realize this, by the way, that everything that happens to us, don't blame the people, don't blame the, them, them, them. Everyone likes to point fingers. Look up and say, Hashem, I love you. Thank you. It's all you. It's all you. Hashem does it for a specific reason. We don't always understand why. But Hashem does things for us all day. Darkness. The plague of darkness is three days of extreme darkness. While the Jews had light, three days of dense, motionless darkness. There are two separate reasons why there was such intense darkness. The first is so that the Jews can inspect the belongings of the Egyptians, but they didn't take or touch a thing. They opened up the drawers. They saw where the Rolex was. They saw where all the the Gucci and Prada products were. They looked where the coach shoes were. They looked around. They saw where everything was. They did an inspection. Didn't take or touch a single item. We're not thieves. We don't run in the night and steal people's items. We don't steal their possessions. That's not what we do. We inspected. We found out where everything was. Okay. Then, additionally, while it was dark, the Jews who were wicked, those who didn't believe properly in Moshe and Aaron, those who didn't believe in the Almighty, those who weren't wanting to leave Egypt, they're like, what's the problem? I see no problem. Let's serve Pharaoh. Let's serve their idols. No problem. They died and were buried during the darkness so that the nations and the Egyptians shouldn't say, oh, it's not only the firstborn of the Egyptians that died, there's also plenty of Jews that died. So it's not even a miracle. Like this, it was during the darkness, and they didn't even know that the Jews died, had their funeral, and were buried. Finished. Done. The darkness gets lifted, and suddenly there's light, and they don't realize that some of the Jews who were wicked died and were buried already. Okay, the death of the firstborn, so we said it's at about midnight. And this is, by the way, the verse in the Torah. It said it adds an extra kaf, which is ka, about. Ka chatzos About midnight. Why? Okay, so let's take, take a sample right now. Everybody, everybody has a watch. Look at your watch right now. Okay, what time is it on your watch right now? By me, it's 10.33. I have network time and your time on your watch, right? So you see what happens is if God says exactly at midnight, you're going to look at your watch. You're like, it's 11.59 on mine. God is wrong. You're going to look at your watch. You're like, 11.58. God is wrong. And other person's like, it's 12.05 on my watch, right? Because everyone has a different telling of time, God says, kachatzos, at about midnight. Why? So that everyone with their craziness of their watches or their time zones, will understand, yeah, it's about midnight right now. Yeah, just about. And like this, it's the accuracy. God doesn't lie. God doesn't say something that isn't 100% true and accurate. And therefore, because God is accurate, he makes it accurate for us with our wrong times. With our inaccurate watches, God makes it so that it's kachatzos at about midnight. Now, one of the questions I asked my rabbi last night, 
was I, I, I don't understand. In preparing these notes, I was like, I don't understand something. Of all the mitzvahs in the Torah, the first mitzvah you give the Jewish people is to set up a calendar? Really? Tell them, Kedoshim to you, be holy. You tell them, I give you life and death, good and bad, choose good. There are so many commandments to give the Jewish people. Uh, uh, let me tell you the first one. Set up a calendar. <laughs> set up a calendar. That's the first mitzvah. It's like... It, why? Why you set up a calendar? Why? Why? So our sages tell us something very important. That the same, see, usually, usually the heavens dictate and determine what happens on earth. The one exception to that rule is setting up the calendar. Setting up the calendar, heaven doesn't decide for earth, but rather earth decides for heaven. And the Talmud says that the structure of our calendar reorganizes the heavens. And therefore, the most important thing for us to do is take that one thing that restructures the heavens and puts things in the order so that it be appropriate for us. For example, we've discussed many times that the power of a holiday returns every year at the same time. So the power of redemption from Egypt comes back every year based on our calendar. Our calendar determined that every year at that time there is this special power, this special aura. On Rosh Hashanah, we have the special power of repentance on Yom Kippur, a time of atonement. Every year, it's based not on the heavenly realms. It's based on our calendar. When we, when we observe these holidays, that's when the heavens have the holidays. It's based on us. So it's critically important that this be the first mitzvah. Understand? It's so powerful that we determine the heavens by our calendar. Such a beautiful... We also see uh, the first Rashi in the Torah, the first commentary on the Torah. It says, why does the Torah need to begin from Bereshis, from Genesis, telling us about creation, telling us what was created on the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day, God rested on the seventh. What do we need all this for? What do we need the history lesson for? We need the 10 generations from Adam to Noah. We need another 10 generations from Noah to Abraham. Then we need the seven generations from Abraham to Moshe. And then what do we have? Oh, start scheduling your calendars. It's 2,400 years from creation of Adam and Eve till the Jews receive the Torah. It was year 2448 from the creation of Adam and Eve when the Jews received the Torah at Mount Sinai, which is going to be from what the Parsha that we're talking about now. It's going to be in 49 days. This is going to be, they're leaving Egypt, which is the first night of, the second night of Passover. They leave Egypt. And then 50 days later is the holiday of Shavuot where the Jews stood at the foot of Mount Sinai. 
and they received the revelation of, from God. So the obvious question is, why does the Torah give us this whole 2,400-year history? If the Torah is meant to be a book that tells us how to live life, then just tell me the laws. Don't tell me the stories. Spare me the details. What do I need the stories for? I need to know about Abraham. I need to know about the flood. I need to know about the Tower of Babel. I need to know about Jacob and his brother Esau. I mean, what do I, I need to know about Joseph being sold to Egypt. What do I need all those details for? Just give me the instructions. Tell me. Rule one, rule two, rule three. Give me all 613 and I'm good to go. Say, just tell us. The Torah is not about the mitzvahs. It's not, we're not robots. We're not meant, here, observe it like this, observe it like that, do this, do that. We have to know how to treat people properly. We have to have the right perspective, to have the right relationship with God. That we learn from the stories. We learn it from the people God focuses on, his main characters in the Torah. We learn it from Noah. We learn it from Abraham. We learn it from Isaac. We learn it from Jacob. We learn it from Joseph. We learn it from Moses. We see how they conducted their life. It's not only about what you do. It's how you do it. I need to put on my talit, which we're going to learn soon, the laws of talit. I need to put on my talit, so let me put it on with all the fervor. And when I swing it back, like we discussed last week, you 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 put it, make it like a shawl, like the Arabs do. I say to say, be very careful when you swing it back that the strings don't whip somebody in their eye. Oh, I'm such a righteous person. I'm such a tzaddik. I'm just gonna whip in the process of doing my mitzvah improperly hurt someone. It's not what you do, it's how you do it. And that's what the Torah is teaching us. The Torah is not only telling us what to do, it's telling us how to do it. How to be kind to one another. How to be loving to one another. How to be forgiving to one another. It's not only about the laws. It's the way in which we perform those laws. And here the Torah is starting to give that structure. We have the structure We have the flavor already that was given in the previous 15 portions. Now we're starting to get the framework. Now we're building the actual structure. We had the foundation laid. Now we can start building the structure of each of those mitzvahs. Two mitzvahs must be observed before the Jews leave Egypt, and that is the Korban Pesach and the Brismila, the circumcision, which we received from the covenant of Abraham, and the Paschal Lamb. The Korban Pesach, the Paschal Lamb, is tied to the bedpost for four days to examine for blemishes and to defy their gods. Their god that they served were the Lamb. What did we do? We take their god and tie it to our bed, showing It's insignificant to us, your God. It's very important for us to be able to make a statement of our support of the Almighty, of our belief in the Almighty. It's not enough for us to just say, well, look, it's not my my 
you know, my choice, but I'm just gonna, um, let's agree to disagree. You know, that, that style of like political correctness. There's something more that a Jew needs to have. You need to be able to stand up firmly for what's right. God gives us a commandment. Don't be shy. Don't hide your Judaism. Don't shy away from your Judaism. Yes, I'm a proud Jew. I'm going to keep that keep on my head, and I'm not going to take it off. You know why? Because God teaches us to be proud of our Judaism, to be proud of our heritage, to wear it as a badge of honor. And when we do so, by the way, the nations of the world look up to us. They don't look down at us. They don't criticize us. When we wear it as a badge of honor, like the story you just said you saw in the news this morning, not to run away from our Judaism. Not to like, oh, we'll push it aside. No. We prominently display it at our window on Hanukkah. We put that menorah out there and we say we're proud to be Jews. We're not going to hide it. So that's the first thing. The second is the blood is put on the doorposts. It makes a lot of sense now. Why are we putting it on the doorposts? So God should know that you're the Jewish people. Give me a break. God doesn't need to see the blood on your doorpost to know that you're the Jews. But that it is so that you are able to make that statement. You're no longer like the nations of the world. We're different, and we're going to show that difference, which is why the halacha says, we learned previously in the Living Jewishly podcast, that a Jew needs to distinguish themselves from the non-Jew in the way they talk, in the way they walk, in the way they dress. They wear white laces, we wear black laces. They wear red laces, we wear blue laces. Even to such a small thing, a small detail, we distinguish ourselves from the nations of the world proudly. Proudly. We put the blood on the doorpost so God will see that we identify as Jews. We're proud of it. That is the key to our redemption, to our success in life. It's not about God knowing who we are. It's us declaring our commitment to the Almighty. I think both such fundamental principles that we need to reiterate to ourselves, to our family, to our children, when we talk about the exodus from Egypt, but also to do something to demonstrate our Jewishness, not to hide it. To feel proud of it. Now, the Jewish people asked for the gold, the silver, and the garments. And when they said, that the Egyptians said, and this is right before they leave, they go over to the Egyptians and said, can we borrow your gold and your silver and your fancy schmancy Rolex and purses and shoes? And they're like, oh, sorry, we, we don't have any. They're like, Haha, sweetheart. The second drawer. Behind the closet there, you have that little hiding spot? Yeah, yeah, in there. Check in there. Let's see. Open it up. And they're like, oh. Now again, the Jews found favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. God says it, says it twice, that God will give the chain of the Jewish people, the grace, the kindness of the Jewish people in the eyes of the Egyptians. Egyptians will see them oh, you're such nice people. You really were great for 210 years of slavery. Not too bad, not too shabby. You're pretty good people. 
and they gave it to them. We didn't hold them at gunpoint. We asked, can we borrow it? Exactly as God commanded. And they gave it to the Jewish people. The Jewish people leave Egypt with 90, Midrash says, 90 donkeys filled with riches. 90 donkeys. Egypt had zero wealth left in its land. Nothing. Everything was given to the Jews. Jewish people leave Egypt. Moshe, though, delays. He doesn't go to the Egyptians and get their their belongings, but rather he did a different mitzvah. And that was to collect the bones of Yosef, the remains of Yosef, and he cut the shittim wood that would be needed for the tabernacle, for the mishkan, and he was very greatly rewarded with the remaining sapphire chisel pieces from the tablets. And our sages tell us, God says, you know, Moshe tells God, okay, I chiseled out the sapphire that you told me to from your tablets. What do I do with all the extra pieces? Moshe says, that's your reward because you didn't take from the Egyptians. You were busy doing the mitzvahs that I commanded you. The Midrash tells us that the value of those sapphires far superseded all the value of all of the possessions that anyone else had received from Egypt. Sometimes it's worth it not to grab. Just be patient. Your time will come. And then we see that there are so many mitzvahs to recall the exodus from Egypt. We have the mitzvah of tefillin. The Kiddush that we recite every Shabbos, Zecher L'Yetzias Mitzrayim, a commemoration of our exodus from Egypt. We have the holidays. They're all Zecher L'Yetzias Mitzrayim, a commemoration. Why do we have Sukkot? Commemoration to the exodus from Egypt. Why do we have Passover? Commemoration of the exodus of Egypt. We have, even on Shabbos, we have multiple times over Shabbos that we recall, a commemoration. Why are there so many mitzvahs to recall the exodus from Egypt? Why so many reminders? I mean, come on, it's okay. Just tell me one time, I'll have one mitzvah, and it's good enough. Why do I need so many reminders? Because we even had here in class where people say, you know what? If God showed me a miracle right now, then I'll believe in God. I've had so many times people say that. I'll only believe if I see the miracles. Sages tell us the miracles of the Exodus are not a time-limited miracle. They're a miracle that each and every one of us can reconnect to by the observance of these mitzvahs. When we observe these mitzvahs, we're able to relive the exodus. We're able to feel, if we're able to connect properly with those mitzvahs, we're able to feel the closeness of God where he took us out with an outstretched arm. And we'll see next week the unbelievable miracles of the splitting of the sea. That didn't happen yet. Right now they just left Egypt. Next week we'll see it was a long journey. They journeyed for a while. It took them a while to get to Mount Sinai and to receive the Torah. But we need constant reminders. It's to tell us how vulnerable we are as human beings that we forget things so quickly. How many times do we say, oh, something happened to me. I'll never forget that for the rest of my life. I'll never forget that. You ask them two weeks later, what's the greatest moment of your life? They can't even recall it. Here is the greatest moment in the history of the world 
the entire world witnessed. Imagine you open up the New York Times and they're like, just as Moses the prophet declared, this is exactly how we report. Our reporters live on the ground in Cairo tell us that indeed there were frogs all over the land of Egypt. And you get this report and it's like, wow, people are like in awe. And we'll see in two weeks portion in Parshas Yisro that he was the only one who read the Midian Times and the Chronicles of uh, South Africa. They were reading the paper and they're like, he's the only one who said, wow, this is amazing. I got to do something about this. I want to join those people because people who have such miracles, I want to spring into action and do something, which is very rare. Most people see something and they're like, okay, it's not my business. Leave me alone. Oh, that's interesting. Wow. And people have all these reactions, but that doesn't mean anything for me. What am I going to do? And when we see something, we need to do something. That's the most important message that we can derive from the entire Torah. You see a miracle? Don't just let the miracle pass you by. Do something for it to memorialize it. And that's why we have so many mitzvahs memorializing this incredible miracle. So that we never ever forget the miracle that we all experienced. We experienced it. Our ancestors experienced it. Our neshamas were all there. And they were all represented in the Exodus and at standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. This is our miracle. Hashem should bless us all that we should be able to connect with God through his mitzvahs. Now that we're going to have every week, almost every week, we will have more mitzvahs and more mitzvahs that we're commanded to observe to demonstrate our connection with the Almighty. It's like a young man getting married. And when young men get married, I learn with them before they marry, before their wedding And I tell them, one of the things I tell them is, you're going to have to learn to be a giver, to be happy in marriage. You, you, I'm talking to you, guy, man, fellow, you're about to walk under the chuppah, you better learn to be a giver. Tell them, go to Walmart and buy 50 cards for your wife, 50 I love you cards. He said, I'll give you the money for it. There's actually a section in Walmart that is 94 cents for a card. I'll give you $50. Go buy 50 cards. You know why? Because your wife needs to be reminded regularly of how much you love her. Not only with cards. You can mix it up. You can buy her chocolate. You can buy her flowers. You better buy her flowers. You get her a nice, a nice beautiful picture. You buy her jewelry, which is an obligation. By the way, women, you can hold your husbands accountable for this. Before holidays, before Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot, it is an obligation on every man to buy his wife a special garment and or jewelry. Jewelry is considered a garment. Tell him to listen to the podcast. It's an obligation. Every man, every Jewish man is instructed by the Torah to buy their spouse a gift so they can wear something new special for the holiday. Huh? Now you know how you build up a... Uh, a jewelry box filled with jewelry. It's every holiday. Let's go. Pay up, sir. But it's to commemorate the unbelievable miracles that we experienced. We have the, we'll talk soon. We'll talk in future weeks. We'll talk about some specific mitzvahs 
like Pidgin Haben, redeeming the firstborn. What a mitzvah. An incredible mitzvah. How it attaches and connects with our exodus from Egypt. My dear friends, have an amazing Shabbos. Thank you so much.